Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back. Today is going to be all about defense. That's right. Everyone's favorite sexy topic on the basketball court. And specifically, we're going to take a journey together. This is going to be slightly different than some of my other shows that involve me sitting and talking by myself at the mic going through research that I've compiled. This is research. We're going to go through research, but we're going to kind of take a journey together. This isn't some comprehensive uh, sort of statistical process that I'm going to present the end of here. This isn't a, a deep, long article with tables and, and things that could look at all the different ways to slice this problem. Instead, we're going to go through great defenses in NBA history together and kind of look for a handful of things that drove me on this journey, a handful of guiding principles, and try to answer some questions that I started with that led me down this rabbit hole in the first place. Those questions are the following. One, what are the characteristics of great defenses. And in this case, we'll just focus on the regular season for simplicity or some kind of statistical simplicity, because when we get into the playoffs, it gets a little trickier to gauge exactly where teams are. Plus, you don't get the same sample. You only get half the league every year, and then only eight teams even make it to the second round and things like that. So we'll just stay in the regular season. So what are the characteristics of a great defense? Specifically, we're going to look at sort of the best defenses ever, and then the band of defenses right below that that I'll call elite defenses. Who are the coaches who keep showing up in this journey? You know, sometimes when we think of X's and O's and basketball innovators and Mike D'Antoni's and Don Nelson's of the world, it's often focused on offense. But of course, so many of the great coaches ever are defensively slanted. Uh, those coaches do win a lot of uh, Coach of the Year awards, and they do get a lot of credit as being great defensive coaches, but sometimes it it can be lost kind of in the shuffle, especially over the career of a coach. And some of these coaches keep popping up over and over again, and there's a couple things going on that I want to kind of tease out today. Again, we won't we won't get to like some definitive answer, but we'll go through it together and look at these specific coaches what they're doing when they get to their team, what characteristics of the team change, how they change personnel or lineups that they like to play, maybe things like that. And then what's the outcome? How valuable is that? Can the coach come in and take you from last place defense to, I don't know, middle of the road or middle of the road to one of the best defenses in the league? And of course, when you become one of the best defenses in the league, then you're winning a lot of games with your defense 
and it's just up to your offense to maybe stay afloat to compete in the playoffs or maybe even uh, for a championship. Here's a big one. What is the ceiling on a great defense without a great defender? This is kind of how I started this journey, working on the greatest uh, greatest peak series over the last year. And especially when you get to like the 80s and 90s and start to get into some of the big men, Patrick Ewing is someone who didn't make the cut in that series. You have examples that keep coming up of, oh, these are some of the most impressive historic defenses we've ever seen. And my natural question sort of becomes, how much of that is a result of a great defender, especially a great defender in the middle, a great rim protector, a shot blocking presence who kind of patrolled the paint in that less spaced out era back in the 80s, 90s, even you know 2000s, early 2000s, before the game started to space out a little bit more uh, and use the three-point shot. So what is the ceiling on a great defense without great defenders? And then as an offshoot of that, how much do you need a great rim protector to be a great defense? If you don't have that classic big man rim protector patrolling the lane, can you be a really great defense? How good on defense can you be, maybe? I don't know if we'll get clarity on every single one of these today as we go through some of these teams, but that's the goal. That's the idea. Before we start, there is an asymmetry here that has always bothered me that I kind of want to throw out there to think about. Um, It's an asymmetry between how we talk about supporting casts on offense and supporting casts on defense. And I imagine this comes from not having a lot of defensive metrics historically and even today. It's, it's, I think a lot of our offensive metrics have become pretty you know granular, pretty developed. They give us a nice picture of the game. But on defense, we still kind of struggle to measure that really well. And then even with our eyes, when we watch the sport, we're drawn to watching the ball ping around the court naturally versus... Uh, watching off ball where defense might be more relevant or more important. Um, Not to mention that defense doesn't really get any love um, from highlights or viewed as, you know, it's, it's not really viewed as sexy in the, uh, in the sport by a lot of fans. So it creates this asymmetry, which kind of goes something like this. If a player and specifically maybe a star player, someone who we think of as, being in the conversation a lot, you know, a a big name. If a good player has talent around him, then we tend to say he is either carried or has help when that's offensive talent. So if he has offensive talent around him, he's often labeled as, uh, I mean, I guess in a generous way, he has help, he has a good supporting cast, or in some negative light, well, he's being carried, he's got an incredible supporting cast. If he is an offensive star and he has defensive talent around him, then he's the one carrying his teammates. And this makes some sense, right? Because it goes back to having a harder time measuring defensive value, uh, not looking for it. And so we look at a player, I think some recent classic examples um, in MVP voting that come up are Derrick Rose in Chicago in 2011, and Allen Iverson in Philadelphia in 2001. Those are perfectly good seasons by both players. 
um, in many ways, electrifying seasons, uh, given their makeup as players. But it's often sort of viewed as, especially in Philadelphia, these heroic carry jobs or dragging a weak team to great heights. Uh, of course, in Philadelphia's case, they didn't really get to great, great heights. They just were in an incredibly weak conference in the postseason. But that aside, the point is, even if they didn't get too far in the playoffs, um, same with Chicago, who had a, a great regular season run and then lost in the conference finals, these are teams where certainly the MVP narrative has been boosted by the idea that these guys have a very weak supporting cast instead of saying they actually have help on defense. And that's the asymmetry. It's that if you have offensive talent around you, then we kind of either acknowledge a player has help or sometimes it becomes becomes a pejorative where we say, oh yeah, his team is stacked. He's got all these other players. And that can cut in the opposite direction sometimes as well, where if you go back to a team like just off the top of my head, because it's coming up in the Greatest Peak series, the late 90s Lakers with Shaq and young Kobe. And then you also had like Eddie Jones and Nick Van Exel. Um, the Mavericks had this as well in the early 2000s, where not only did they have Dirk and Steve Nash, who was electrifying already, by the way, and Michael Finley, but then they thought, you know, we're going to bring in Nick Van Exel. There he is again. And Antoine Jameson and another guy at the time who was an all-star or at least making all-star teams, Antoine Walker, um, Jerry Stackhouse got in the mix, you know, just let's keep bringing in offensive players. And this can kind of create the illusion, this asymmetry I'm talking about, where we view the team as being stacked, even though they're incredibly fundamentally flawed because they're very, very weak on defense. The last one, of course, is is even <laughs> kind of the the worst, or the player gets the worst of it, which is if the player is a defensively oriented star, and then he has only a little offensive help, then he's either carried by his offensive help, or he's just not that good in the first place. He's quote-unquote dependent on these other offensive players. Rudy Gobert is probably the best current or recent example of that going. And that actually kind of just reminds me of how we think about independency in general. Maybe it's a, a cultural thing coming from the idea of the, the self-made man mantra, which is in reality an impossibility. It's kind of the same on the court. Everyone is dependent on their teammates to help lift the team up. And so if you're on offense and you quote unquote have to carry a defensive team, that to me is a complete misframing of what's actually happening because you need defense to lift the team up in some capacity. It's possible to be incredible on offense only and have a weak defense and try to win that way, this sort of seven seconds or less Suns model, if you will. That that can work, but then you still have to acknowledge that your offensive teammates are helping you, if that's the case. As usual, I've gone down a rabbit hole and distracted myself from the goal of the show. Let's get to the greatest defensive teams and their characteristics. But before we do that, something maybe for me even more exciting, which is HelloFresh. Um, HelloFresh has been kind enough to sponsor today's episode. And as I've mentioned, I get incredibly excited 
about cooking. And the cool thing about HelloFresh, the thing I really love, is one, they give you a lot of optionality. So you go to the site, you pick from, if you're a vegetarian, they have that, they have pescatarian, they have low, low calorie, um, they got all sorts of different things you can choose from, you select it, they ship it to you, and then the fun begins because you open up your meal box, and after that, it's 20, 30 minutes to assemble the meal, so it's fast, it's easy, and a lot of people I've talked to, it's, it opens up new cooking doors for them. Last week, we had Kyle Mann from The Ringer, Jay Kyle Mann. A really fun discussion if you haven't heard that one on last week's episode and afterwards when we finished recording we started talking about hello fresh and he was telling me about how it, it gets him uh it gets him to up his tortilla game and sort of try new things that he never does so that's been my experience with it as well uh hellofresh.com slash thinking basketball 10 when you head on over there hellofresh.com slash thinking basketball 10 and use the code THINKINGBASKETBALL10, you will get $10 off your meal, including free shipping. HelloFresh.com slash THINKINGBASKETBALL10. HelloFresh, their tagline, I love it, America's number one meal kit. I just turned into to Jeff Goldblum, there. Mm, the number one meal kit. Mm. Um, <laughs> HelloFresh.com slash THINKINGBASKETBALL10. Okay, there are about 30 teams in NBA history who have had a defensive rating that's been six points ahead of league average. So it's a relative defensive rating of minus six or better. Really quickly, and some of these have multiple seasons in a row, for instance, Bill Russell's Celtics, 1962 to 1965, did it four times in a row. So I'm just going to riff off kind of the, the teams they were able to do this. Russell Celtics, the 1970 Knicks, that's Willis Reed, Walt Frazier, Dave DeBusher, Red Holtzman's Knicks, 1973 Celtics, 1975 Washington, what was the team that year? The Bullets. Um, the Wash, Boy, Washington sports teams change their name a lot, don't they? That's a whole separate podcast. 1989 Utah Jazz, uh, 1989 and 90 Detroit Pistons, and 93-94 Knicks, 97 Miami Heat, 98 Cleveland Cavaliers, 99 Spurs, the legendary 2004 Pistons, the mid-2000 Spurs do it a bunch of times, 2007 Chicago Bulls, remember that's uh, Ben Wallace traded into that team, the Garnett Celtics do it a ton, 2008, 2009, 2011, 2012, the 2009 Magic, the uh, Tom Thibodeau Bulls do it a bunch in the early 2010s. Uh, Roy Hibbert's Pacers, 2013-2014, and the 2016 Spurs. So, assuming you got all that, there will be a quiz at the end of the episode. Um, what what jumps out to me about going through that list is that almost every single one of these teams has what we would think of as a great interior presence in the paint. So we mentioned Bill Russell, but I mean, 1989 Utah Jazz, that's Mark Eaton, who has a block per- percentage of six and a half percent that year. Uh, but anything over like five or six is really, really high historically. And then you have teams like the Knicks with Patrick Ewing that I mentioned, that 97 Miami team is Alonzo Mourning. Even the 98 Cleveland team that sneaks in there. You've got Zadrunas Ilgauskas when he's young. He has a 4.3 block percentage. 
what I'm kind of really looking for is teams that have an interior guy who's like a 2% block percentage or a 3% block percentage. If you're four, five, six in today's game, you're thinking of a guy who can block a couple shots per game from night to night and typically exerts some kind of deterring pressure coming into his lair in the paint. 99 Spurs obviously have the Twin Towers. So on and on and on, it's hard to find really, really great defenses. That 2009 Magic was Dwight Howard. Um, It's hard to find great defenses that don't have a high-end interior presence. From a statistical standpoint, going back to Washington sports, that 1979, man, I almost called them the Wizards, that 1975, let's get the years right, um, this HelloFresh is going to my brain, the 1975 Bullets, they had Elvin Hayes and the bruising Wes Unseld. Wes Unseld is not really a vertical defender. His block percentage that year was 1.3%. That would be a classic case if it were just his team of a defense built around a big man in the middle who isn't really a classic shot blocker or paint protector. But Hayes had a little bit more of that, and he had a block percentage up at 3%. He was also, I thought, a very active uh, kind of big impact defender. He had a steal percentage over two that year. And so do they qualify as a team that doesn't have a, a big interior presence? To me, not really, because I think their whole defense is built around those two guys in the paint. One block shots and the other steamrolls people. Um, the 1990 Pistons, or they did it in 89 and 90 technically. They they achieved this level of regular season defense, but we can just kind of call them the bad boys Pistons of the late 80s. I would say that they are the first team and maybe one of the only teams ever to achieve this sort of incredible height on defense without a clear shot-blocking big man anchoring the defense in the middle. But there's some caveats. John Sally off the bench was their leading shot-blocker with a 3% block percentage, and they had other bigs that were all around kind of 2%, which again is is the lower end of kind of what I'm looking for here when I'm saying is there a big paint protector or shot blocking big in the middle? Um, and so in this case, we would think no, but it's not a team completely void of the ability to block a shot at the rim. And I think that's, of course, relevant because when we think about the characteristic or makeup of the Pistons, they were a very rugged, physical, athletic, even horizontal um kind of defense where they had guys who maybe we would even today call switchy. You know, when you think of someone like Rodman or you think of Sally's uh, mobility for a big man, these were all assets in the way that defensive system functioned. And he certainly wasn't a great shot blocker, but Bill Lambeer was someone who camped out in the paint and, you know, he would give you a hard foul or contest you when you came in the lane. So they're kind of a a team worthy of an asterisk to me. And in this case, that's what we're looking for. We're trying to go through and pick out teams that are different. They're a team that kind of doesn't really have a classic shot blocker, and yet they were able to achieve this height, but rim, rim protection 
and paint presence in general does still seem to be a thing. After that, after those top 30 teams or so, there are a number of teams that were four to six points. Remember, we just did six points better than the league. There are a number of teams that were four to six points better. That sort of next band of regular season defensive quality, at least just by looking at relative defensive efficiency compared to the league. And by my count, there are another 119 teams that fit that bill. And now we're going to start seeing more teams that don't have that makeup of put Bill Russell in the middle and, you know, Bob's your uncle. What What is the etymology of the phrase Bob's your uncle, I wonder? I don't know. Maybe we should look that up. Maybe that's next episode. Um, these teams, 1970, early 1970s Chicago Bulls, 1972, 73, 74. That is uh, Dick Mata's club with Jerry Sloan, Norm Van Leer. They did this three seasons in a row. They were a very good defensive team. And they had Clifford Ray in the middle, my old basketball camp coach many years ago. And his block percentage was 3.6, which still suggests that you kind of have a decent shot blocking big in the paint. But I certainly never thought of Clifford Ray as like a a big time, it doesn't even have to be big time, just like a good, um, you know, this guy really, really helps protect your interior with his paint presence. So kind of maybe like the Pistons teams, this team is on the borderline, but they were first in the league in forcing turnovers. And I think that's interesting because Van Leer and Sloan were good on-ball defenders, rugged, gritty guys, Again, maybe a, a minor degree of what we think of as switchability based on how they played. And so Bob Love was also on this team, Chet Walker. And maybe it's the first really salient example. Again, maybe because Clifford Ray is still there. But maybe it's the first salient of example example of a team achieving really good defensive heights without having that classic big man who you funnel everything to. I'm not going to go through all 119 of these teams, but I will try to point out as we kind of move through history quickly, 80s, 90s, uh, aughts, and 10s, the teams that maybe broke this mold without a shot blocker. So for instance, the early Bucks teams also fit in this band 72, 73, 74, but they have Kareem in the middle. So they would not be an example. Interestingly enough, And I don't know what to make of this yet. Maybe, and this is what I mean by we're going through this together. I'm sure many of you will have ideas about this next point. You always do, and that helps so much and then drives me to ask more questions or research and kind of moves the conversation along. The the thing I'm thinking of here is in the early 1980s, there were a ton of these teams who seemed to be able to generate pretty high-end defensive impact in the regular season without a classic rim protector behind them. So in 1980, Sacramento, with Sam Lacey in the middle, I think an underrated passer, um, but his block percentage was only 2.6%. And this was a team with Phil Ford at point guard and Otis Birdsong and 
Scott Wedman, a guy who would make all defensive teams. And it was coached by Cotton Fitzsimmons. And they forced the most turnovers in the league. Again, there's that turnover thing. So it's like, if we have active, disruptive guys on the perimeter, then maybe we can generate a lot of defensive value without uh, taking away the rim, without clogging up the paint and making those easy high value shots harder for people. You know, that seems, I mean, that's, that's certainly a classic basketball mantra among coaches. And we start to see that again. So the Bulls maybe had that here in Sacramento. They had that, that whole team, by the way, could generate a ton of steals. They were third in defensive rebounding percentage as well, despite not being at the very top of the league in, in opponent field goal shooting. So activity, whole team had like a 2% steal rate. Around the same era, the Supersonics did this. And the Supersonics are, you know, they're tricky because Jack Sigma's there. But Jack Sigma was not a, I mean, his block percentage in 1980 was 1.5%. And so maybe you have some better presence coming off the bench. They had John Johnson coming off the bench. Maybe you have a little more length coming off the bench there. But they were near the top of the league in opponent field goal percentage against or effective field goal percentage against if you use the classic four factors. So maybe they were just an example of a team that guarded really well and had good defensive success across multiple positions again Dennis Johnson 6'5 a great defender uh, obviously a good big strong sturdy on-ball defender Gus Williams and Lenny Wilkins coached him and we'll see Lenny come up again in a minute here the Suns the early 80s Suns now Dennis Johnson left Seattle and went to Phoenix and the Suns became a team that forced a lot of turnovers and they had absolutely no notable interior shot-blocking presence. Um, Truck Robinson, Jeff Cook, Walter Davis, Alvin Adams, Dennis Johnson, that's the team. And they were very successful defensively. And then two more teams from this era. The, again, with Washington. They were the Bullets at this point. The Washington Bullets, Rick Mahorn was their best shot-blocker, a young Rick Mahorn. Jeff Ruland, Ruland was there. Gene Shu coached the team. They had no all-league defenders. They were also kind of, you know, what we would think of as elite, though. And then the Nets. The Nets forced the most turnovers in the league, 1982 and 1983. But their best shot blockers in the middle, their big men, Buck Williams, under 2%. Lenny Elmore, about 2.5%. Uh, they rounded out that team with Ray Williams, Foots Walker, Darwin Cook. Foots Walker, what a name. Again, no all-league defenders, and that team was coached by Larry Brown. And Larry Brown was coming off of the best defensive team in the ABA when he coached there in Denver. So just keep that in the back of your head, because he's going to keep coming up over and over and over again. And in this situation, he does not have that great shot blocker. In Denver, he didn't have that great shot blocker. His best shot blocker there was Bobby Jones, 3% block rate, but Bobby Jones is not a center. He's not really a pivot. If you've seen Andre Kirilenko play at his defensive peak, um, 
that's what Bobby Jones is like. I've mentioned him before in the all-time sixth man podcast episode I did last year. He is a combo forward, kind of could play the three and the four, very active, moves around a lot, flies around. And he was probably or, or most certainly their best defender in Denver. But now I'm curious because going through this, we've got Hubie Brown in Denver. Now we've got Hubie Brown in New Jersey of all places, and he's popping up with these teams that don't have classical rim protectors who are creating a lot of separation with their defense. One more team from this era. I told you there are a bunch of teams from the early 80s, and then we're going to jump about two decades, uh, the Milwaukee Bucks. And the Milwaukee Bucks did have some, like, Alton Lister or, uh, you know, some shot-blocking presence later on or off the bench, but, I mean, this team was very good with Quinn Buckner pressuring, getting into the ball. Sidney Moncrief, one of the great on-ball defenders, uh, at least by reputation in league history. Um, young Marcus Johnson. I mean, they were a really kind of athletic, perimeter-oriented, length-oriented team out there and, and very successful on defense that way. And the coach of that team was Don Nelson. And I'm, I'm fairly certain that'll be Don Nelson's last mention on this list. Let's jump to, I think, one of the classic examples here, which is the late 90s Bulls. And this one's interesting because Luke Longley, who started for the team, uh, didn't play huge. He wasn't like a 35-minute-per-game center then, but in the 1,600 minutes per game he played, for instance, in, what is that, 97? No, no, no. He plays 1,500 minutes in 97, 1,696. He's around 1,600 minutes in all of these seasons, and the Bulls still finish as an elite defense. Um, Rodman, Pippen, Jordan, Randy Brown, even some of the bench guys. Like Judd Bushler was in many ways an early 3 and D player. I don't think Judd was a great defender, but that was essentially his role. He was in the game to try to provide some energy and effort on defense and shoot threes. So that team with the, what Phil Jackson used to call the Dobermans, with all the long athletic wings with Pippen and Jordan swarming around. Um, they were not in that first all-time group that we looked at, but a number of seasons in this group without a classic vertical presence taking away the rim. Another really interesting team from this era is the Cleveland Cavaliers. Mike Fratello's Cleveland Cavaliers, who played slower than a snail. Um, their pace was like 82. And you have to remember with pace that the other team's offense influences your pace as well. So the Cavs were playing even slower. If, a if another team played like the Cavs, every game might have been 70 possessions. And yet, as a team that was 27th in the block, in, in blocks, in the league, with... Ty Hill as their only notable interior defender. Um, the rest of the core lineup was Danny Ferry at the other big spot. And then you had Bobby Phils, Chris Mills, Bobby Sura, and Terrell Brandon. They never really had any defensive accolades among that group. And yet they were second in the league in forcing turnovers. And they finished with one of the best defenses in the league. And, you know, one of the, what is that, 150 best defenses ever. 
that's a really interesting team to me because of the pace, because of maybe trying to cheat back on transition defense, things like that. And just having no notable, I mean, they don't have a notable defensive star or semi-star really anywhere on the court. Whereas the Bulls teams we just looked at, Rodman, Jordan, and Pippen were all league first team defenders. Hmm. Make of that what you will. Think think about that. Put that in there. Put that in our pipe and just chew on it for a second. The 1999 Orlando Magic. Now, Bo Outlaw on this team did have a 3.8% block percentage. Horace Grant had a 2.7% block percentage. So they're a little on the high side for kind of looking at this exercise without, you know, any big time shot blockers in the middle. But Bo Outlaw I mean, I don't know what we think of him, but he did not get any all-league defensive consideration. He did not get any defensive player of the year consideration. And that was a team, again, Matt Harpring, kind of a physical, rugged wing defender. Daryl Armstrong, not even necessarily thought of as a high-end defender, I think, by a lot of people. Just a very active, pesky player. They forced a lot of turnovers. And it's a little footnote in history, but who was the coach of that team? It was none other than Chuck Daly from the Bad Boys Pistons. So it's interesting connections to me where if like Bo Outlaws kind of like a John Sally, you know, molded defender or some of those, um, you know, athletic, mobile, semi-vertical, big men, wiry guys, stuff like that. And yet you can get a really good defense out of that roster. And that's not even that impressive of a defensive unit, as I mentioned. Let's do one more from that dead ball era at the end of the illegal defense periods in the early 2000s. The Phoenix Suns, 2000 and 2001. Scott Skiles was their head coach. They were only 13th in blocks. They were fourth in forcing turnovers. They were fourth in opponent field goal percentage. So disruptive able to guard, and who the heck was on this roster? Jason Kidd. Jason Kidd was surrounded by, again, 1,400 minutes of Luke Longley, Penny Hardaway, uh, that's post-surgery Penny Hardaway, post-surgery Tom Gugliotta, Uncle Spliffy, Clifford Robinson, and two key guys to think of that they brought off the bench. Oliver Oliver Miller, who was a shot blocker, really, really long kind of paint protector kind of defender, most notably um, played this role for the 1993 Phoenix Suns on their way to the finals with Charles Barkley. He had a 5% block rate off the bench, but he only played 1,100 minutes. And a rookie named Sean Marion played 1,300 minutes. In 2001, you add in 3 and D guy like Mario Eli. Tony Delk is there. Marion's a year older now. He's at the top of the rotation. They were first enforcing turnovers. So Marion, Kidd, maybe some athletes, maybe a couple other decent defenders, and the coaching, that is enough to get you in this range. And I think very highly of Jason Kidd. I think one of the all-time great guard defenders, or certainly point guard defenders, a big guy, good 6'4", and him and Marion and these other parts with the right approach or coaching can get you a a pretty good defense. Uh, I mean, heck, that's a great defense. 
What am I saying? Pretty good. That's great. Before we jump to the last decade and two more teams that I want to highlight before we kind of circle back on the the conclusions and what we can take away here or, or what emerged to me as we go through this. Offensive rebounding and the effect it has on your defensive rating. I, I know we're talking about defense, so why am I bringing up offense? Because it's the beginning of your defensive possession. When you go to crash the glass or fall back on defense, that is where your defense is set at the start of its possession. And so I did some research about 10 years ago that kind of looked at this among teams in I think it was like 2008 to 2012, like a five-year window around that time, and tried to gauge, you know, how much are you actually losing um, or the trade-off is really the right word. How much are you giving up on defense if you crash the glass on offense? In theory, that will improve your offensive rating, but it will come at the expense of your defensive rating when you don't get those boards. And the uh, flip side of that is true as well. Of right, If you fall back and you don't crash the boards, you can have great shooting numbers and draw fouls, but you're going to give up a bunch of second-chance opportunities that would drive up your offensive rating, and in exchange for that, you pick up defensive rating. The 2011, 12, 13-ish, off the top of my head, Celtics were famous for this in certain circles because they would basically never crash the glass and always prioritize defense at the end of their own offensive possessions. So that's another factor to keep in mind. Um as I said, we're going through, you know, we're walking through this together. So this isn't some final polished thing where I've calculated this effect for every single team. This is a survey of these teams. And when we get to the 2010s, the first team that you could kind of say maybe fits this bill without having the dominant interior presence is the 2012 Heat. They were third in turnover percentage and eighth in effective field goal percentage against. They did start Joel Anthony, who is a shot-blocking you know, center. That's his function, uh, 5% block rate. But he only played 1,300 minutes. And the rest of this team, of course, Bosch is not really uh, you know, a guy who you build your defense around in the middle. It's not really his defensive function as, as valuable as he could be on defense. It wasn't quite his thing. Um, LeBron, Wade, Shane Battier. On that team, you had Norris Cole, another kind of guy in there to play on-ball defense. Mario Chalmers was the starter. So kind of like the 90s Bulls, I think, to some degree in makeup. Last team, 2018 Celtics with Brad Stevens. Al Horford, the best shot blocker, around 3%. Now, he was in Atlanta as well next to Millsap. I don't know if you disqualify both those teams because you think of Al Horford as the not great but good interior defender you build the defense around. Um, You know, to me, maybe Al Horford has a little bit more horizontality to his game, a little more mobility um, baked into his game than just absolutely deterring you from coming down the lane or, or making scoring at the rim area specifically really hard. So make of that what you will. But the rest of the team interesting because 
It's a rookie, Jason Tatum. It's Jalen Brown. It's Marcus Smart. It's Aaron Baines. It's a little young uh, Daniel Tice. Daniel Tice, when he was young, was a shot blocker who couldn't really hang or shore up the other parts of his defensive responsibilities in that position. Marcus Morris also on that team. Kyrie Irving and Terry Rozier. And that's about it, my friends. That is... uh, that is about every team in league history that I could really go through. And out of these 150, you know, top 150 defensive teams, there's a decent chunk that we just looked at that aren't built around a classic paint protector. So I think one of the conclusions right away is that the majority of defensive teams have a great interior big or interior bigs driving the defense. And maybe it's easier to build a great defensive team because bigs tend to have what I've called in the past high defensive usage. A lot is funneled to them. A lot of high value shots are in their domain. They're the tallest guys on the court usually. Basketball's a vertical game. Things like that. But you don't need an elite defender in the middle, which is interesting. So you often have a great shot blocker, but you don't need one. And in the cases where you don't need one, It seems that having athletic, long forwards, sometimes uh, who are also physical, kind of multidimensional, it seems like when you think of them, they could play a a three or a four. Um, You know, Gerald Wallace in Charlotte, those early 2010s teams, also coached by Larry Brown. Um, we'll, We'll get to that in a second. That seems very helpful, along with guards and wings and these other guys who can be disruptive and create turnovers. It's not impossible to have an elite defense without those things, but it seems incredibly rare. Like, you just guard, you you don't have a great paint protector, and one through four, um, or even one through five, you just guard really, really, really well and make shots difficult for guys. That seems extremely rare and difficult to do. This also, in a way, by the way, might help explain why when we look at plus-minus studies, guys we think of as on-ball defensive specialists don't pop in the numbers. They, of course, have value. They can be valuable. Some of them on the perimeter are really, really good perimeter defenders um, by these numbers, but it's not the same as these are the best defenders in the league or these are the guys winning defensive player of the year. What about the coaches? That was another one of our big questions when we started. A couple coaches who had repeat appearances on this list. Alex Hannum, 1964 in San Francisco and 1968 in Philadelphia. That's both with Wilt Chamberlain. Casey Jones, that 1975 Washington team. He also did it again with the 86 Celtics. A ton of interior defenders on the 86 Celtics with McHale and Parrish. I mentioned Chuck Daly. Pat Riley did it. We mentioned both those teams, the uh, Patrick Ewing Knicks, and then he hopped over to the Alonzo Mourning Heat. He should have just kept picking up Georgetown centers. How he never had Dikembe Mutombo is beyond me. But his protege, one of his uh, coaching tree offshoots, Jeff Van Gundy, had Dikembe Mutombo from Houston in 2007. I can't. I don't think he was there in 2006, was he? Maybe off the top of my head. Um, he was there in, in multiple seasons there. But Van Gundy 
uh, did that in Houston 2005 through 2007, and he also did it with the Knicks teams at the turn of the century with Marcus Camby and Patrick Ewing. We mentioned uh, two Mike Fratello teams, the Cavs from 97 to 98, and the 2006 Grizzlies with Pau Gasol and Shane Battier, guys like that. Lenny Wilkins did it on three separate teams, the 89 Cavaliers, the 94 Hawks, and the 97 and 99 Hawks. All those teams had different interior presences. Of course, the 94 Hawks, that's a team that if you look at, you think Stacey Ogman, Mookie Blaylock, guys like that um, are driving it in terms of high-end defenders. And then whoever was left in the middle was decent and good enough and had some paint paint presence. Uh, Grant Long, I think, was their leading shot blocker that season. Um, Coach Bud, Mike Budenholzer, has done it both with Atlanta and Milwaukee, Frank Vogel, uh, Indiana, 2013-14, as we mentioned, and the 2020 Lakers, great big men in both of those situations. Um, Greg Popovich, Greg Popovich did it with Tim Duncan and David Robinson, then after Robinson retired in the mid-2000s, and then again the Kawhi-Duncan Spurs teams popped up uh, in top 150 defenses ever. Here's a surprising name, Rick Adelman. I think probably an historically underrated coach, both in terms of his success and his X's and O's. And here, you know, a tip of the hat to show up on this defensive list, the 2008-2009 Rockets, uh, that Van Gundy team that he took over, and the 2003 Kings, a really, really good team who, you know, maybe if a couple balls bounce differently, win the championship that year after being bumped by the Lakers in the classic 2 series, and that changes all kinds of legacies and things like that. But the 2003 Kings were a fantastic defense. Phil Jackson did it with the late 90s Bulls, as mentioned, and the 2000 Lakers behind Shaq. Scott Skiles did it three times, uh, early 2000s Suns, mid-2000s Bulls. Those were some of those baby Bulls teams with um, Tyson Chandler, Luel Deng also on those teams, Kirk Heinrich. And the 2010-2011 Milwaukee Bucks. Now, this is a really interesting case study because Milwaukee was 30th in defense in the league in 2008 with a team of Michael Red, Mo Williams, Andrew Bogut, Desmond Mason, a few other guys. 2009, Skiles comes in. They go from last in the league in shooting against the 17th. They jump to first in turnover percentage. Red and Bogut were injured a ton that year. And they bring in Richard Jefferson. They have a guy named Luke Richard and Mute, who's a heck of one of those combo forward defenders. And then they always try to have a guy on the bench who can protect the paint with some, you know, level of competency. Dan Gadzarich, Francisco Elson, you know, the le- the legendary names of the late 2000s. Um and they jumped to 15th in defense. That's in 2009. Then in 2010 and 2011, as he sort of continues to move the roster in that direction, Ramon Sessions becomes the starting point guard. You get a grittier, high-end, like really high-end defensive team from that group. Some of that is clearly tailoring your lineups, as is the case with a lot of these coaches, toward more defensively competent players on the floor at a given time. And some of it, of course, is your coaching, just your actual ability to execute defensive schemes effectively. 
how much is one or the other? I don't know. This is the journey we're on together. You let me know what you think. Um, it is a mysterious question that I'm asked all the time, and I don't have a great answer for it. It's a tricky thing. But the guy who's most interesting, and last but not least, is Larry Brown. And as I, I mentioned in, I think it was David Robinson's Back Picks 40 profile, uh, Larry Brown, everywhere he went, the defense got better. And in most cases, significantly better. So we've already mentioned a, a handful of his teams throughout history. We haven't mentioned the Reggie Miller's Pacers. That's another defensive team that got better. But two more that I really want to focus on before we wrap. The 1999 kind of Allen Iverson turn of the century Sixers. They didn't quite make the cutoff here as one of the top 150 teams ever. But first with Theo Ratliff, um, big bruising interior guys, Matt Geiger, Ty Hill shows up again, George Lynch, um, then the trade for Dikembe Mutombo before the 2001 run in the finals. This was what I was talking about at the top of the show. This is a team that played Eric Snow, kind of a, a grisly, um, you know, defensively oriented point guard. They played defensive first guys. And that was a team constructed really around that defense that needed a scoring centerpiece to fill in. And that's what Allen Iverson did. Last but not least is the 2004 Pistons, one of the all-time great defensive teams after trading for Rasheed Wallace. And what's interesting there is in 2006, when Brown leaves, he's replaced by Flip Saunders. And I think Flip Saunders' track record as a defensive coach is questionable, let's put it that way. Um, the team kind of with the exact same personnel starts to fall off a decent amount defensively. There's still a very good defensive team, but it's it's not the same degree by any stretch of the imagination as that peak 2004 championship level Larry Brown buy-in with the talent. And that's what's so interesting to me because he's always trying to put more defensive guys on the court. But in that situation, you had, remember he swapped in Tayshawn Prince, and then you get Chauncey Billups, Tayshawn Prince, and the Wallaces. I mean, you could put me out there as the fifth guy, and they would probably have a championship-level defense behind Larry Brown's defensive coaching and principles. So for our last question, what is the ceiling on a great defensive team without a great defender? I think it's hard to pinpoint it as of right now, but it is fascinating to me that if you get good defenders, you know, good defensive players at kind of any position, you can have great perimeter defenders and decent interior defenders, or just a team of like solid good defenders, you seem to be able to get to this at least elite level or near it, minus four, minus five, minus three, without really picking out anyone as great. Um, you know, maybe it depends on how you feel about the the bow outlaws of the world in 1999 and, and players like that. It, it's probably really hard to be a good defensive team without any decent defenders in, in the same way that if you don't have any decent offensive players, that's an issue. But going back to the asymmetry to start full circle, I don't think 
these things are symmetrical on defense and offense. Because on offense, you need some level of synergy because there's only one ball. And, you know, whether you have a single heliocentric guy driving that or you have a number of balanced parts, it's a different thing than getting buy-in and effort on defense, uh, which seems to be most of what this defensive success is about. For some coaches, it's about putting more defensively oriented players on the court, but also you need that effort, you need that buy-in, and to a certain degree, you need that intelligence or capacity to process the team scheme of what's happening, but there's no ball. You're just reacting and trying to rotate and play in sync. So it's not the exact same thing as building a good offense without an offensive superstar or building a solid offense without any good offensive parts. And, and at least to me, it seems that all of that has pretty huge implications for how we think about great defensive players and like their team's defensive ratings, but even how we think about great offensive players and what they're able to do on teams without really acknowledging the support and coaching infrastructure they have on defense. Remember to check out HelloFresh.com slash ThinkingBasketball10. You got to throw the 10 on there and use the code ThinkingBasketball10. That'll get you $10 off. Uh, check that out. Also, to support this show, head on over to Patreon.com slash ThinkingBasketball. Right now, you can get the greatest Peak Series episodes a week early, depending on your tier. We have early releases four different tiers. There's also all kinds of uh, historical stuff over there. And soon we will be kicking off the kind of in-season player statistics board that I keep on, on all the proprietary stats throughout the year. Thanks, as always, to Patreon subscribers for all of their support. Thanks to everyone out there still listening who made it all the way, all the way to the end of this one. And of course, wherever you are out there, I hope you're having... A great day.